You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to a special edition of Ocean Currents, where a show where we talk about the blue part of our planet, the ocean. We focus on research, conservation, natural history, management, expeditions, and ways for us land-based folks to get involved and learn more about what covers three-quarters of the Earth's surface. So thanks for joining me today. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of three spectacular National Marine Sanctuaries off the central California coast. And my hope is to build interest and knowledge about our ocean through this show. So today, as we talk about ocean noise, um, I hope we can learn a little bit more about how we might be able to get involved, but we have some compelling sounds to share with you. And the ocean's health is suffering from multiple issues like pollution, over-harvesting, ship traffic, ocean acidification, and one that is harder for most of us to imagine in our everyday lives is ocean noise. The ocean was once referred to as the silent world by Jacques Cousteau, but now it's become an increasingly noisy place since the industrial age. It is estimated that the ambient ocean noise has increased 10 decibels, that's 10 times increase in sound levels, between 1950 and 1975, and probably after that even more so. So when I think about the ocean myself, I think of sounds like this. Because when I am in the ocean, I'm usually on scuba diving. Here are some fish making some sounds in a coral reef area. nice and peaceful sounds breathing underwater. But in reality, what we're experiencing now, or at least the larger mammals in the ocean and everything else in the ocean as well, um, they hear different wavelengths than us, and they are hearing much different sounds. And we're going to try to play this here. Ooh. Which would you prefer to listen to? I think that's pretty clear. There's increasing attention being drawn to this issue and identifying the sources of it. To explore this issue today, I have Michael Stalker here in the KWMR studio. Welcome back, Michael. You've been here on the air a couple times on KWMR shows, so welcome back. Thanks, Jennifer. Really, um, it's an honor to be here again. Uh, Michael is an acoustician and naturalist by trade and also a musician. He has been working on ocean bioacoustic issues since 1992. His understanding of both physics and biology has proven invaluable in court testimony and legal briefs, defending the environment against the dangers of human-generated gener noise in the sea. So, Michael, with this background of yours, when did you first learn about ocean noise as an issue for animals in the ocean? Well, it kind of goes back a long way. Actually, when I was a child, I had aquariums all over the house. My mother tolerated that and, uh, and actually supported it. We had saltwater aquariums, which um, 
Uh, at that time, you had to kind of mix the salt. There was an aquarium uh, at Morro Bay, and they had hydrophones in one of the tanks that uh, played the sounds of the rockfish, and I was completely fascinated with that, and I thought, wow, i got to do that. And my mom said, no, your little fish don't make that kind of sounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, little did she know that some of the fish that I had and some of the Corridoras and what have you are actually sound specialists, and they make a, a, an interesting array of clicks and chortles. I don't know if it would have been something that would have been able to um, uh, be heard over the sounds of the bubbling uh, pumps and things like that, which seemed to um, they tolerate. But uh, in any event, I was kind of on that track when I was a youngster um, and wanting to be a marine biologist as a kid uh, was only thwarted in my high school years by a biology teacher who was incredibly tedious. and, and uh, I thought of biology is like that. I don't want to do it. So I ended up getting involved in sound because that was my fallback position as a musician. And uh, that took me through signal processing, acoustics uh, work, and what have you over the years. And, and kind of it came all together in 1992 when the Navy uh, was proposing a deep sea communication system and sonifying the entire Pacific Basin with sounds. And uh, um, I didn't think it was a good idea. So I started presenting uh, with my understanding of both biology and physics uh, at uh, hearings with the California Coast Commission, National Marine Fisheries Service, and other hearings where they were kind of discussing whether or not this was something that would, uh, would float. And they did the program. And, and if, in fact, acoustic thermography of ocean climates, which was the first program, had that been really the only noise in the ocean, I would have, um, you know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. But I saw that as a harbinger of things to come, that they were, in fact, going to be bringing a lot more communication systems into the ocean and other stuff. And that started this little kind of detour was that the ATOC you were yes, talking about, that the thermal a, stuff? Yeah. Uh, you know, originally, actually, I'd been following the work of, of Walter Monk, who's really, a, you know, kind of a brilliant um, oceanographer, physical oceanographer, and uh, brilliant, but also kind of not necessarily focused on, he wasn't a biologist. He didn't really think about the ocean as, as a vessel for life. Uh, they did a program back in um, 90, 89, 90, called the Heard Island Feasibility Test, and it was literally the first sound that was heard around the world. They heard that sound in, um, they, they generated down in Oceana on Heard Island, and uh, they heard it on both sides of uh, Cape, uh, Cape Good Hope in South Africa, and so um, it was heard around the world. Interesting. The Heard Island. That's yeah. It's discussed that way. That's amazing. I heard it traveled the, around the entire planet. Correct. Under the ocean. This under, one sound. One sound. Amazing. So it really kind of puts it on the plate of what we're looking at here in terms of a global issue with uh, marine life and ecosystems at risk. So with all that experience, tell us a little bit about Ocean Conservation Research. This is an organization that you've founded and you're now working under to work on these issues. What are you up to? Yeah, uh, well, I started working on it as an independent for quite a few years, and then I started uh, working with other nonprofit groups, kind of as a science advisor, and doing work with um, uh, a little bit with NRDC, but more with uh, Earth Island and Greenpeace and uh, Animal Welfare Institute, kind of advising them on some of the uh, uh, more kind of arcane aspects of, of ocean physics and ocean acoustics. It came clear to me in 2006, uh, I was at a conference in Hawaii, and I was in the it was acoustics conference, and I was in the bioacoustics section, and I noticed that probably 90% of the papers that were being presented that day were funded by the Office of Naval Research. 
And while it was good science, it was not necessarily conservation uh, prioritized. They would look at things like uh, recoverable thresholds or maximum sustainable exposures and things that, uh, you know, they don't really ring, have a conservation ring to them. You know, what mm-hmm. I would like to know is, is at what point in time do you start compromising the system? So I realized the only way we're, that we were going to be able to get any kind of progress towards uh, mitigation on this was to actually uh, drive the research ourselves. So I started ocean conservation research a few years back, and we have been bit at a time growing and uh, delivering papers and uh, doing research, doing some uh, mathematical modeling, and uh, every year we get a little bit bigger and and a little bit more successful. That's great. It's good to have an independent stream there for looking at certain questions. What are we? Where are we at collectively? The whole ocean noise issue is bump, somewhat recent compared to other things like pollution and marine debris. But where are we at collectively with the knowledge about the impacts of sound on marine life? Well, this is actually a fairly new field. Uh, I mean, there were people kind of doing studies, mostly Navy people, doing studies on on you know, impacts of various types of sounds on animals. And in the past decade, there have actually been people trying to you know come up with systems to. For example, acoustic harassment devices, which keep net, net predatory uh, uh, harbor porpoises and seals and whatever away from uh, aquaculture uh, operations. But we really know very little about it. I mean, the, the animals that we do know what their hearing thresholds are, we're testing them oftentimes in the context of human um, time domain priorities. Uh, you know, dolphins can hear certain frequencies, but what happens when they are uh, more, more set in a complex biological setting? And I'd like to back up a little bit. You know, you mentioned that, that the ocean, uh, you know, the silent ocean paradigm that was kind of the misnomer that, that uh, Jacques Cousteau put out. Actually, the ocean was a lot quieter in 1957 than it is now, certainly. But we just uh, published a paper, and, and hopefully it's, uh, it's in peer review right now. But we uh, modeled the ocean uh, noise prior to industrialized whaling. And just with the five species that we had uh, noise models on, uh, and also able to kind of model the quantities of animals that were pulled out of the ocean, the millions of, of whales that were pulled out of the ocean, uh, we find that in 1820 the ocean was actually louder than it is now. So uh, how did we know, though, in 1820? What type of stations did we have out? Well, I mean, this is what the paper's about. Essentially what I do is I, I, I look at the animals that we have sound profiles for, and uh, we tried to figure out how many animals were pulled out. Uh, and there was a couple of different ways of handling that, uh, taking whaling records, uh, tasting, taking biological records, uh, um, DNA records, and what have you. And we found, for example... Uh, that the whalers were not necessarily inclined to report accurately what they were pulling out of the water because they were getting taxed on the quantities of uh, whale oil that were selling on the heavy. Um, we found in some cases the underreporting was stunning. Uh, Phil Clapham uh, and Jules Yuvashenko came out with a paper that was uh, unpublished information that was uh, gathered by biologists who were on uh, Soviet whaling fleets as, as it was kind of mandated by the International Whaling Commission. And while they were reporting, for example, that between 1957 and 1963 that they only pulled 45,000 humpback whales out of the water, the actual records that were taken by this biologist were 750,000 of that just one species. Amazing. So, and what we did, so you take a humpback whale and you do the noise profile. We know what kind of noises it makes during certain times of the year. And you basically just, you know, do the the integrations and figure out, I modeled the ocean as if it was a big resonant chamber. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of very simplistic stuff. But just the uh, acoustic energy from the various species we had was fairly stunning. So would you say at this point our focus is mainly on marine mammal impacts, or has it broadened to other animals? I know that there's been concern of in, locally here at Cordell Bank, there was interest in mapping, ocean mapping, and there was concern that, well, we're, those are sound waves that are being sent down to map the bathymetry of the seafloor, and what impact might that have on the fauna on the seafloor and vertebrates and whatnot. Right. So it's mainly focused on marine mammals because we've seen these impacts of mass strandings and whatnot. But where else has the studies, where else have they led us? Well, uh, we do see obvious uh, impacts on marine mammals, and there's also a lot more legislation on protecting of marine mammals. Um, but we're seeing compromised fisheries after certain types of assaults, mostly seismic air gun work and what have you. In terms of the mapping, uh, a lot of that would depend on what frequencies are being used. Um, we tend to think that fish don't hear uh, have a very broadband hearing, except now we're realizing that some fish, for example, that the, the natural prey of dolphins and porpoises actually can hear their main predator. So they don't just hear up to 5 kilohertz. They can hear up to 40 to 80 kilohertz. Well, if you're doing your mapping with that type side scan sonar, for example, 45 to 80 kilohertz is not uncommon frequency. Uh, it, they may have some impact. What is it? We don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, fish behave differently. Um, you know, mammals, when they are in threat mode, their heart rate will rise, uh, the cortisol levels will rise, so they'll end up, you know, getting into this kind of fight-or-flight routine. Fish, most fish, when they get into a fear mode, their heartbeat slows down. Their mm-hmm. metabolism slows down. Um, there's speculation as to why that is. Maybe it's they don't want to create such an, a, a strong acoustical signal to their predators. Um, but in any event, they, they behave differently. You know, they don't flee the site. They may shelter in place, if you will. Interesting. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents, and I have Michael Stalker here in the studio, and we're talking about ocean noise. I just heard something today, and I'm wondering if you've heard this story. My my superintendent at my office was, I told him I was going to be interviewing you about noise, and he said, ask him about these sperm whales in Alaska. These, there's these good whales and these bad whales that are, they're, you know, that's of course in quotes, that are hanging out in, with a sablefish fishery. And the good whales, they are hanging way back and waiting for discard from the sablefish after the haul has been pulled up on deck. But the bad whales are going after the bait on the line. Um, and so they've called them the good whales and the bad whales. But what they're trying to do, there's research looking into hanging down these beads of sound mimickers to mimic the sound of sablefish so that the, the, uh, the, the whales will get confused and not know where to go after the bait on the line. Have you heard about this study? Yeah, actually, um, uh, Aaron Thode is the guy who uh, he, we were going to try to get a, 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 you know, do some work with him down in, in uh, Baja, California. Really sweet guy. Amazing uh, photographs that he was able to take. They, they had these predatory uh, sperm whales, and so he hung a camera down on a line and was baited with, uh, in this case, this was black cod. And um, these giant animals ever so delicately pluck the fish off the line. It's very funny to <laughs> Those see. Those are the bad whales. Those are the bad whales. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it is. They're actually taking quite a, they're making quite a dent in the fisheries, um, in the fishermen's catch. So, you know, they want to do something about it. But what do you do when you have a clever animal like that? Um, the, 
I haven't heard of the uh, sending sound mimics down there, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, especially because they echolocate, so I guess they're trying to mimic what the sablefish sounds are so that the the whales will be echolocating on these sound balls instead of the fish. Oh, I see what you're talking about. Interesting. So, so they're actually physical decoys, not, yeah. not sound-making decoys. Uh-huh. Interesting. Well, physical sound-making. They're making sounds. Sounds as well? Yeah. Oh, wow. So okay. I, th- I just thought it was an interesting, somewhat biomimicry type of... Um, impact with the fishery, and I liked the idea of the good whales and the bad whales. It's really funny <laughs> to me. So yeah. as far as noises go, it sounds like a lot of the noise is coming from shipping traffic, and that's increasing as we are transporting goods around the world. Um, what are some of the other noises? We were, you mentioned about you were at a conference recently about oil drilling and exploration offshore work, and that you were learning a little bit more about the types of sound involved with that. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on that as well as do do you have any sounds to maybe to share with the the shipping or the oil drilling i have some stuff unfortunately a lot of the stuff that i'm really concerned about is not uh easy to get a hold of but just to kind of lay the scenario out when they go out and find oil the first thing they do is they have to do seismic surveys and these surveys you use these air guns which explode and create this you know kind of impulse uh, that they then uh, kind of reflects down into the substrate below the ocean uh, bottom and back up to the surface. And then they can read through any kind of the distortions that happen, what's there. And it's amazing, the picture, the very, the very stunning 3D pictures of what happens down to, you know, kilometers below the ocean surface. Um, they have to continuously monitor the state of the deposit as they suck it out, so they constantly are having these surveys going on. That's pretty noisy. You can hear those those explosions thousands of miles away in the ocean. Um, but once they find a deposit, they uh, will then drill. And they drill from a, a platform, these deeper water platforms. They can't just build up a, a, you know, an arbor and, and stick a platform on top of it. We're talking about something that, you know, 5,000 feet deep. It's, it doesn't make any physical sense. So they have these um, stabilized platforms that are stabilized with these thrusters. And these thrusters are these propellers, depending upon the size of the platform, that may be, you know, two, three and a half, four meters in diameter. There's these giant propellers. Well, just a couple of propellers would sound kind of, I'm going to play a cargo ship here. Let's see if we get a noisy ship. Yeah. Oh, that's the other noisy ship. This, this is a cargo ship. This is one propeller. That's just one propeller. But, uh, and that's probably a, a propeller that's about a, a meter and a half in diameter. Um, they would have six to eight of those on board these ships constantly stabilizing because they have to stabilize it with an XYZ axis within a meter so they can poke a pipe down there. I mean, it's, the, the technology used in oil and gas is really, it's, the G whiz factor is real high. The sky's the limit, right? It's really amazing. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot money of money in there. there. <laughs> yeah. But this conference, by the way, there was 90,000 people attending the conference. It's a lot of people. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's... It's a big industry in this in this country. Yeah, but they, the other noises that come. So once they've got they've got the they do the exploratory drilling, they figured out okay, let's uh, you know we got the oil. They tapped into the thing. They will have you know stabilized platforms running around the clock, basically sucking the oil out, processing the stuff. So those propellers don't go away. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a similar sound to just the ships that are moving up and down the coast, though. I mean, if there's 
thousands of ships coming in and out of San Francisco Bay, we're hearing those propellers Correct. over and over, Correct. in and out, all day long. These are particularly large, though. So it's, you know, oh, bigger. Yeah. Okay. And uh, a lot more turbulence is being generated because they're essentially kind of shifting back and forth and grinding in and out. And, um, and then there's the seafloor processing equipment. They don't necessarily just suck the... Uh, the oil up like a, a, a milkshake. There's actually a lot of different substances in that. There's brine, there's gas, there's sand, you know, solids, oil. And so they have to separate that out, and they, what do they do with the, the, the stuff that they separate out? Well, they re-inject it. So you have uh, pumps that suck it out, or actually don't pumps that suck it out, pumps that, that mediate it, uh, push it through the separating equipment, and then re-inject it back into the sea. Um, and oftentimes it's under very high pressure. For example, the BP oil uh, disaster, the wellhead pressure was 13,000 PSI. Wow. When you have triple state materials Jeez. going at that, you know, it's not quiet. Mm -hmm. So that's part. Of, and then there's more noise. It looks like you're looking at a station identification mark here. Is it? No, I'm just nodding along. Okay. thinking of, <laughs> I'm just thinking of these massive cities on the seafloor of equipment and the pressure. And it's just, it's... It's so non-native. <laughs> yeah, definitely that. And then, of course, now that they have a lot of autonomous vehicles that are tending these things, they have these uh, multinodal communication networks, which send out these signals that are anywhere from lower frequency, you know, one to three kilohertz, uh, just kind of identification and navigation signals, to higher frequency signals that actually kick out uh, data. And just to give you an idea of how some of these signals sound, this is some, uh, let's get into the digital modem signals. This, oh, that's a acoustic record. That's high frequency. Can't really hear that one. I, I hear it. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a frequency shift key. Co fairly common. How far would that how far would that transmit? Uh, they usually, their operating range for these multinodal networks uh, operating at 20 to 40 kilohertz or, or 10 kilometers. So 10 kilometers, so some miles. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, what, four, three and a half, four miles. Mm -hmm. um, but there are all these. All these delightful sounds. It causes stress. Yes. I'm feeling stressed. <laughs> yeah, and these signals, by the way, they go on and on and on and on. I mean, there are certain times where they have basically, a, you know, a, a call response situation where they'll have a, a, something they need to do a release, they'll need to do a, a, a you know, signal alignment or something like that, and it's just a beep or two. But all these pieces of equipment will have other times in where they're just kind of kicking out signals forever. Lots and lots of noise. Yeah. Well, for those of you tuning in, you are listening to KWMR, 90.5 Point Ray Station and 89.9 Bellinas, or on the web at www.kwmr.org. My name is Jennifer Stock. This is Ocean Currents, and we're talking with Michael Stocker about ocean noise. Stalker here in the studio, and we're talking about ocean noise. What's happening right now with oil drilling on the coast of California? And I'd like you to also talk about the Arctic work that you've been 
talking about. There's a lot of whales that go up to the Arctic to feed, especially in the summer months. Um, many of them come from down here, but can you give us an update on what's happening with oil drilling? This moratorium expired here in 2008 where we had no oil drilling on the coast and then it, that was not renewed. And uh, it's a new administration now and what's happening? There are a lot of people who are pretty amped up about trying to get as much oil out of the ground as possible right now. And this House just passed a, a kind of a trio of bills that were all fairly favorable to the oil and gas industry. One of them was um, uh, basically lifting the moratorium. Uh, it was uh, designed to speed up uh, the approval of, of uh, leases. Um, and. Uh, another one basically has lifted the moratorium on the east and west coast. Um, we'll, uh, I don't think we're going to see these pass necessarily because there is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people live in California, mm -hmm. and we can put up a lot of resistance. But you can see which way, you know, the, the tide is turning on this stuff. Is that the oil, the, the oil men are really, you know. It was an, this is going to be slightly, you know, a different tangent here, but I was at a conference last um summer in Cork, Ireland, and it was a bioacoustics conference, and pretty much most of the people who were in the field, it's not a lot of us, it's maybe 150 to 200 people, people from the Navy, from oil and gas, from uh, seismic, uh, uh, geophysical stuff, bioacousticians, academics, what have you, and it was a pretty good week, all in all, everybody was nice to each other, but uh, at the end of the week, uh, one of the guys stood up and uh, from the Navy, and he basically was wagging his finger at the regulators, saying that, you know, the scientists are doing the work, and the environmentalists are, you know, pushing, pushing us to be honest about this stuff, and we're getting all this stuff together, but we're not getting regulations we need. We need regulators to, to you know, step up to the plate and do their job. And a regulator stood up and says, well, actually, it doesn't work that way. We don't get to regulate unless we are asked by legislators to draft regulations. Uh, it was clear as a bell at that point to me is that our legislation is choked up by oil and gas people and military. Mm. They're not going to get any kind of mitigative legislation if, if who are you know, if, if the people who are feeding the trough are being basically fed by uh, oil and gas people. So regulations are not forthcoming. Because there's no one to make the legis there's no legislation. To ask for the legislation, Got right. It. And we're, we're, instead, they're asking for, uh, you know, uh, fast tracking of oil lease, uh, of oil leases. So that's kind of where we are right now. It's a sad is that the situation in the Arctic, too? There's an opening up there? Yeah, there's, that's, this uh, opening up of the moratorium also includes leasing the Arctic. So what we're asking people to do is we're asking them to let Michael Bromwich know that we should not uh, open up these areas to leasing until we understand the full scope of all the impacts of the noise that are going to be brought into that, and particularly in the Arctic where we have icebreakers, all kinds of different technologies to stabilize platforms in, um, in ice pack and, uh, and uh, in ice, you know, ice flow, um, acoustical modems, seismic air gun stuff. And until we really know what the impact of these noises are on our fisheries, we shouldn't just burst ahead. Um, and particularly up in the Arctic, because 40% of the fish that we eat, that, that lands up in the table in, in the southern, southern 48, 48% of that Forty percent of that comes from uh, from the Arctic, so we can really mess with our food supply if we don't do this uh, thoughtfully. Well, especially with the massive changes we're seeing in the ocean already, with fisheries and other parts of the world, and that's such a strong support, strong place to get seafood. With it seems like we really need to protect these areas that are the most abundant, that are feeding the most amount of people, and 
when we bring in another additional threat to that, it makes it even more difficult. So you're talking about getting involved, writing letters. Who, 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 where is a good source of information about this the updated oil lease information and getting involved? This is a little bit premature, but, uh, you know, for the millions of people out here in West Marin, I'll just... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're on the web. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We, I've been working with World Wildlife uh, Fund, uh, Dave Applin, who's up in Homer, Alaska, and uh, a really great group, Being Creative. Uh, and we're, We've been putting together this website, and we've been spending the last nine months on it. And they put a lot of energy and, and effort in it. It's called don'tbeabuckethead.org. Oh, I, I saw that. And um, it basically, we're, we're still, we haven't launched the video yet, but it's, it's a fairly embellished site. It talks about all the different noise impacts. We did a really um, thorough matrix in terms of the different technologies and the different animals. So we have, you know, seals and sea lions, uh, mostly seals up there, um, whales, beluga whales, uh, the right whales, uh, the fisheries, and uh, the polar bears as being the, the, the representative groups that be am- impacted so by the big megafauna. And uh, then sub- substantiated by, by the scientific papers, uh, what are the impacts that we know that these, these uh, noises create. And then there's some we don't know. For example, we don't really know how noisy the seafloor processing equipment is. I'd like to drop a hydrophone down there. We've got a nonprofits who are basically, you know, sending out grant proposals. So right. A few, few grant proposals we have out on that. Hopefully, we can drop a hydrophone in the water. And, uh, now, NOAA and the National Marine Fisheries Service they regulate marine mammals under the Endangered Species Act, or the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and they've been conducting analysis on impacts of oil and gas disturbance to marine mammals. Where are we at with those studies? I understand there's assessment that started in 2007, but um, it had to stop, and now it's it's going further again this year, or now, more currently, to learn more about this. Do you know much about where this is at? Yeah. Where uh, this is taking place? There was some what they call controlled exposure experiments done. Uh, Brandon Southall, Peter Tyak, and some other people were doing this. Um, there, it's a little bit contentious because people are concerned that you know, we're harassing these animals. They're being very cautious about it. If you really look at how they're working it, um, you know, they, they essentially go out and tag an animal. They've been mostly working on beak whales because they seem to be the most sensitive. It's very difficult to tag a beak whale anyway. So it's just, hard to find a beak whale. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, they, they spend probably 95% of their time underwater. So you have to kind of see them come up by profile and, and then intersect them. with. And they have these tags, which are basically d- data recorders that have suction cups on them. And they stick on them because uh, they have smooth skin. They stick on them for maybe... You know, a few hours, at, at, if they're lucky, four or five hours. And, and in the course of that, what they hope to do is see what, you know, the swimming patterns and what have you, and then they'll ramp up sounds and figure out if there's a behavioral a modification as a consequence of the sound. So, you know, th- as I say, there's a lot of contention about this. A lot of people saying you shouldn't harass these animals in the first place. We just shut the noise up. The mm-hmm. problem is with, the, you know, the way that the legislation and regulation works, we have to have data. So, you know, in the scale of things, um, you know, it's kind of like the tragedy of the whale jails. You know, the, right. they, you know, they have these orcas or had these orcas in places like marine land, and the orcas were just, it was a pitiful sight to see these poor animals in these dinky little cages, essentially. Oh. But what ended up happening as a consequence, they were like kind of the martyrs. They introduced millions of people to the idea that these animals were not savage beasts, in fact, that they were sentient animals, that they, um, uh, in fact, were friendly. 
and yeah. in some it's a you know it's a horrible thing that humans need to try to get sense beat into them but well historically i mean whales uh, it was hard to get whales on the radar for conservation until um the music of the humpback whales was played and it, it really brought attention to humpback whales and this is during the era of whaling and um it's harder to communicate the animals that we just we can't see a lot of us just don't see them some of us do get to and this is an animal whales in general that are hidden most of the time and it's pretty hard to bring that light to people in terms of their communication this the sounds you had a couple sounds that i wanted to play figure let's bring in some some of the happier sounds the fun stuff the good stuff that we're trying to protect to be around for a lot longer you had some pilot whales i'm wondering if you could play those uh the pilot whales i have which has got masking where the motors go through it but i'm going to play some belugas the belugas i'll I'll play that in a second the belugas are called the canaries of the sea Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a sweet it's almost like what a uh, cp3o so is this echolocation we'll be hearing? Uh, these would be actually, there. there's two signals here. There's a, there's a social calls, which are the kind of tw- squirrely, tweety stuff and stuff like that. And then you hear the and the bzzz are actually buzzes that they use to echolocate the, to find them. Oh. Um, so here we go. Wait, here we go. Okay, that was one. Where's the other? Those are belugas, and those are belugas, and I get another beluga. It sounded like there was some other type of sound in there. Was that a different noise in the area, or a boat, or? No, those were all belugas. Can you play that one again? Yeah, I'll do that. Almost sounds like a little moped getting started up. Yeah, it does a little bit, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Let's see if I get this other beluga here. Wow. It's like R2-D2. Yeah, it's our P 3 or whatever. I guess those guys talking to each other. It's kind That's of like amazing. That. But it's really sweet and very musical. And, you know, one of the things that we're trying to push is the idea of biomimicry, that, you know, these animals are cooperative hunters or pack hunters. They can coordinate fairly fast and tight hunting strategies, and they do it with these sounds that they create. So how could we use biomimicry? Are you talking about a way to lessen the impact on marine mammals? Well, yeah. I mean, if you take, for example, this, uh, that sonar, uh, you know, communication sonar, would you rather hear that or would you rather hear something that sounded more like the belugas? Yeah, belugas. Yeah, belugas, right. And, and so there's some people say, well, if you put those signals in the water, maybe you'll confuse these animals that they'll think. That's what I was wondering. I mean, I was thinking, like, in a way to compare, we have this issue with what we call spam email or phishing emails that people think that, um, well, if you get an email and you think it's something from somebody you know and you open it up, it could become a very dangerous thing. It's like mimicry in a way. Hmm. And I was just trying to think of ways to, you know, Equal, make sense of what mimicry is in the ocean. And if you're making the sounds of an animal, it's like, wouldn't it want to go towards that sound in terms of, or go, why would it want to go away from a sound that sounds like itself? We haven't tried that. Um, but the idea behind this is these actually, these sounds are pretty loud. 
um, you know, they're about between 160 and 185 decibels. That's loud. Mm -hmm. But these animals have been living with that sound. They're habituated to it for the past, you know, 20 some odd, maybe 30 million years in some cases. A lot of these animals have not really changed morphologically for the past 30 million years. So chances are they've adapted to that sound. They can handle it. And if we are using signals that sound like that but embedding our own data in that, you know, they, I don't suspect they're going to get confused by it. They'll probably say, you know, who, who's that? What's oh, going I on see. there? You know, it's, yeah, it's enunciate, enunciate. On. I can't understand oh, you. Yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> Got that. Okay, language barrier. Yeah, right. Still some sound. Well, that's interesting. So is there any research being done? It sounds, you know, the case I brought up earlier, the sperm whale and the sable fish, the black cod, sounds like an experiment happening with biomimicry. But are there others that you're that you're aware of? We're really pushing this. This is one of the issues that, you know, in the, in the bioacoustics field, there are really two schools. There are the people who are the physicists, who are kind of physical oceanographer types, and they, they look at animals as if they're input devices. And then there's the people who are biologists who understand animals as being a repertoire of behaviors and, you know, in, a, in a, some kind of an envelope. Uh, but they don't tend to speak a common language. We're getting a bit more of that right now. But so, so some of these ideas really require uh, people to kind of step outside of their own particular silo discipline and start looking at, well, how can we actually... The biomimicry is really a generalist's field. And generalism is not really something that's promoted in academics right now. Mm -hmm. So it's starting to happen. People are getting, you know, dual majors that are actually crossing over the different uh, silos. We're starting to see that. But, you know, essentially we're trying to push this ourselves. So let's go further with that. It's uh, quarter to six. We've got about ten minutes left. Those tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my name is Jennifer Stock. I'm talking with Michael Stocker about ocean noise. But if what... If you were the perfect world, what could we be doing right now in terms of raising this issue towards more legislation and regulation? Um, what, where, where should we be? Where can we be? Or where should we be aiming to get with this issue? Well, you know, I'm trying to do what I think is the best, most uh, time-efficient, cost-effective way of, of coming up with solutions to the problem. And what I see uh, as some of the possibilities in biomimicry is to actually, first we need to understand what the impacts are. Um, there are some things that are fairly obvious. We've developed a metric that helps express the differences in sound qualities. For example, uh, you know, alarming sounds are alarming not because we're taught that they're alarming. It's because they sound horrible. Mm -hmm. And so we leave. Uh, sounds like the belugas, which is, you know, high frequency moving. It could be, in, in fact, an alarming sound, but it's not. It's very pacifying. And the reason being is there's a certain mathematical, uh, I should say, you can model it mathematically, but if you look at the harmonic content of it, you look at the time, uh, the, you know, kind of the time domain uh, variability of it, you'll, you'll see um, what they call uh, it's a statistical way of expressing it called kurtosis. And it talks about, you know, high kurtosis signals are very edgy, you know, sheer, shattering, brake squealing. Uh, and low kurtosis signals are things like, you know, violins playing or the orchestra or what have you. So there's basically a continuum between low kurtosis and high kurtosis. At some point in time, you'll start to see the continuum correlating with, with anxiety, um, panic, 
an out-and-out bolt for the door. So we're developing metric to express that, and uh, we'd like to get that nailed down uh, and then use that to do correlative studies with, with humans and people who can say, oh, that's a horrible sound, you know, and see if there's a correlation between heart. And I suspect there will. So it's one of those things, but you have to kind of prove it scientifically. And then take that into... Uh, you know, Brandon Southall's uh, control expo- exposure stuff, see if there's a correlation there. And not necessarily work with the beaked whales. I mean, work with other animals, work with captive animals that have been worked with before. Um, the Navy's got no, you know, they've got a, a whole operation down in San Diego where they have these animals. I mean, this, you know, we have these animals. We're trying to learn as much as we can from it. Sounds like there's some rapid research going on right now. There's a lot to prove, basically, yeah. before we can do much more. Exactly. And, but my, my suspicions are that if we prove this cortosis metric as being something that does express uh, um, agonistic sound characteristics, that we can then start crafting the sounds we use in the ocean to be less agonistic. Okay. Because it's not like we're going to get rid of the sound anytime soon. 90,000 people were attending that conference down there. They're not going to be out of work tomorrow. So we need to figure out a way to lessen the impact as much as possible. What about areas? Is there ways to create areas where we have less? I mean, there's some areas that are just so important to the survival of species in terms of feeding and breeding grounds. Are there any special protections that can be put in place in some of these areas and who would need to be in working on that? One of the things that uh, I was really thrilled about was when Jane Lubchenco was, being a, was appointed to, you know, the head of NOAA. Mm-hmm. Because she's somebody who really understands the importance of, um, you know, temporal spatial mitigation measures, monitoring areas for when they're sensitive, and, and setting up uh, mitigation procedures. And we have now the data processing to be able to handle that, to model the coast and find out at what time is it most vulnerable, what are the areas that are most, uh, most productive for, for um, you know, regenerative life. And uh, so we have the models, we have the people in this in place to understand that. And I think that we're heading in the right direction on that. Um, I know there's been a lot of resistance, particularly with the, um, you know, off here, the, the coast of California, where they're basically having the marine protected areas. Mm-hmm. It's going to be always contentious, particularly if it's a, just merely a California coastal up to three miles, because beyond that, it's still, you know, still a, the Wild West out there. Right. Um, but it is a heading in the right direction, and my suspicions are that after two or three years of putting up with those marine protected areas, that we'll start seeing the productivity uh, increase in those areas, and, and then it'll and then the fishermen who were upset about it most now will say, well, I guess maybe it's not such a bad idea. Mm. Yeah, that's regarding fishing. I was thinking of noise. Well, I'll also mention with the national marine sanctuaries here, we have Monterey Bay, Gulf of the Thrones, and Cordell Bank. Um, a recent working group has been formed between Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallon Sanctuary, since these are pretty much right next to each other, um, to address impacts related to vessels and boats. And so there's a working group that is put, just started up, and they are going to be looking at um, ways, recommending actions to reduce ship strikes and ocean noise impacts in the sanctuary. So we know that there are ship strikes happening because there's whales washing up that have incredible um, abrasions and that's deep, deep cuts that are, there's been impact there. But it's hard to prove where they happen. But, you know, we are, these National Marine Sanctuaries happen to be right over the shipping lanes where we have all these ships moving in and out, yet they're also really important areas for these whales. So I think it's a good thing to, to highlight, to bring up that there are people that are associated with the sanctuaries, different scientists and different groups that are meeting to 
look at the existing body of research that we know and with data and facts and um, accurately characterizing these areas and then hopefully making recommended actions of how to reduce the ship strike. So working a lot with the Coast Guard and and other organizations. So there is some momentum and interest, I should say. Yeah. And the in, uh, International Maritime Organization actually put together, uh, you know, a noise criteria for, for boats. And it's, you know, they're, they're taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I appreciate that. And, and uh, I don't know. I, I know that there's been a lot of work done off the coast here particularly. Uh, I, I decided not to get involved in the working group because coastal noise profiles are so complicated Mm. It'd be very difficult to try to. They might be coming to you with some questions. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. What What would you recommend to to everyday people like us, anybody that might be listening? How they can What can they do about this issue, or what can we do to stay apprised of the new information coming out? The larger rubric under which this all fits is: we have to stop driving our cars, we stop <laughs> ride our bicycles, stop using fossil fuel, all that, stop using plastics. I mean, all these things which are are tormenting us. I mean, I can wag my finger at the Navy all day long, uh, but unless I start changing my behaviors, uh, it's not going to make a difference. So we have to actually express ourselves in uh, in our concerns in terms of our own habits, in terms of uh, becoming more aware of it. Uh, we have a website, www.ocr.org. Uh, there's a lot of information on that. Um, the don'tbeabuckethead.org is actually interesting, specifically about the ocean, but also we'll talk about collateral noise of, of oil and gas. Really, the biggest noisemakers in the ocean are oil and gas people in the military. The, the ships are there creating noise. There's a you know, overall noise floor increase as a consequence of that. Difficult to tell at what point in time this what they call masking thresholds will be hit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Such a hard area to study. Well, particularly with the larger, you know, the mysocetes, the larger whales. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way you can do operant conditioning testing on these guys. You can't train them to, to hit the paddle once they're given, you know, three tons of krill. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> well, actually, I have a blue whale sound I'd like to play. We have just have a couple minutes here. So let me cue that up here. On There we go. So is this scaled up? I hear that flopping. Is that is that ship noise? The the grunting, the grunting. That sounds like a minky whale. That little Yeah. hard to say. Hard to say. Could be pitched up. They're usually lower than that. Well, here's the next track that I have here is Blue Whales with some ship sounds. Mostly ship sounds. Mostly ship sounds. <laughs> there it is. The thumping. Okay. Well, 
Now, don't blue whales use this communication to find their mates across the ocean? Well, we speculate what they use it for. There was an amazing piece done by Chris Clark where he tracked uh, blue whales in the ocean and found that they didn't go from point A to point B in a straight trajectory. Rather, they would seemingly head towards, you know, uh, geophysical features such as um, uh, seamounts and trenches and ridgelines and whatever that, you know, it's an informed speculation is that these animals are actually echolocating with these low frequencies on these, uh, you know, physical features of the ocean. So there seems to be some, uh, some support of that. Interesting. Well, it's a wide open field for research, and hopefully we'll get more people involved with um, learning about acoustics and physics and, and applying it towards conservation. We really need to have more work done quickly, it sounds, to get action towards protecting these areas that there's oil drill interest and uh, exploration. So um, any last comments we have? We have about 30 seconds left. Well, I really appreciate this opportunity, Jennifer, to sit and, uh, you know, exchange with you on this stuff. And it's a really, it's an opening field. It's, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, the ocean needs our love right now. And needs a lot of love. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but um, really interesting. And, you know, it's such an interesting topic for me. I don't know a lot about ocean noise. So I'm really, it's pretty perplex, interesting information. But hearing the sounds alone is, is pretty complex to process that animals are dealing with this. So hopefully other people learned as well today. Thanks for bringing those sounds in. Um, for those of you still with us, we are just towards the end of the program. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month on KWMR 1 to 2 p.m. Thanks for joining us today, and you can catch all past shows from Ocean Currents on the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary website. Just go to cordellbank.noaa.gov and scroll on down to tune in, and you can catch all the past shows. And I'll be back on June 6th at 1 o'clock talking with Dave Reynolds from the NOAA Weather Service, and we're going to talk about how the ocean affects weather and how the atmosphere affects the ocean. And with this very cold spring, I have a lot of questions. It's been really cold this year. Um, I want to thank Michael Stalker again for coming on into KWMR. Have a great afternoon and evening, and we'll be back on June 6th with Ocean Currents at its normal time slot, 1 to 2. Take care. Thanks for helping to protect our ocean. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.